before we get into this week's podcast, uh, a couple of thank yous. First up to Rich over at Whiskey Wolf. Um, go over and check out thewhiskeywolf.com and you'll find some really cool shit um, from Akami Hard Soaps, um, which are all natural, through to some pretty cool rash guards that he's got coming up at the moment, stickers and all the usual good sort of design-led stuff that you expect from Rich over there. And second up, big thank you to uh, Cast Iron Coffee Roasters. Those guys constantly keeping us fed with, with some really great coffee. Um, again, for more information on Cast Iron, go to castironroasters.com and uh, yeah, check out their stuff. On this episode, we sit down and we speak with a, with an old friend. Um, we chat with Ben Robson from Unorthodox Performance. We cover a range of topics from his recent relocation to finish off his master's um, out in Italy, um, where he's collecting a load of data. We cover his, his recent trips to ADCC. And we also speak to Ben about a metric that he's started to create, essentially allowing you to monitor your performance in terms of physical output um, through your jiu-jitsu prior to competition. Anyway, um, listen and enjoy. Welcome back to the Bro Triangle podcast, Ben. You're currently in Rome. It'd be good to hear a bit about what's going on over there and then why you're there, really. Yeah, so I'm over here for, uh, I'm here till December, uh, the middle of December, um, basically just collecting some data, doing some research for my master's thesis. So in biomechanics, um, not doing too much research like data collection at the moment, just because we're waiting on a few bits of equipment to come in. But um, basically just looking at the neuromuscular function of um, people with injured ACLs. So seeing how they perform during a step movement and whether stepping off of something onto different surfaces and their sort of different compliance um, whether that affects the sort of pre-activation that you can see within um, subjects who've been injured and then healthy subjects then to compare against. So it's quite a nerdy way of just looking at people stepping down, but it's been a, a while coming since I've started my master's of actually being able to come out and start this research. Why Rome, Ben? Was it there's, they're already working on something that you could kind of fit into or is it a, a specific choice you made in terms of location? There's a, there's a very good team out here who've got very good connections, but I didn't choose Rome. Um, the sort of lecturer who is supervising my dissertation back in Cardiff, he is Italian and he was at this university out here uh, before he moved to Cardiff. And he sort of said, look, these guys have got this project going. There's an opportunity for you to go. There's funding. You can go out there. You can work as part of this team and you'll be able to collect some sort of meaningful data and actually potentially get a sort of publication from this. So sort of me being me and the opportunity to get anywhere outside of the UK as quick as I can, I sort of jumped on it and said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, yeah, just sort of it all came together and now I'm out here in the swing of it. Um, doing research, sat at a desk most of the time, reading a lot of things and then sneaking away and getting in as much jujitsu as I can. Yeah, you, you say that you're sitting at a desk, mate. Judging by Instagram, there's a lot of gym and uh, jiu-jitsu work going on as well, though. Yeah, so it's all about the balance, I say. Um, <laughs> work hard, play hard. <laughs> it's a fine line, Ben. It is. It's a very fine line. <laughs> so with regards to the, the ACL injuries, is it like pre-op, post-op, or just minor injuries? The clinic that I'll be based in, or I am based in, um, They've got very good connections with elite sports. So it's a private medical clinic that they sort of became famous for getting Totti back to sort of 
back to playing as quick as they could. Um, so we're going to be looking at people, I think they're going to be probably about one month post-op. Um, and it's going to be a variety of patella tendon and hamstring grafts. And it'll be a variety of sort of um, subjects. So there'll be some sort of normal people and then it'll go right through to elite sport athletes just to see how it can vary. That's awesome, mate. So although you didn't choose Rome, that's a, that sounds like a hell of a place working somewhere with that reputation. Yeah, it's awesome. Like the, the medical clinic is amazing. The sort of bits of kit they have there and um, sort of the facilities are fantastic. They have some bits of kit for rehabilitation, which I think some people in like the UK would give an arm and a leg to sort of use and be able to get back to training as quick as they could. So it's, uh, it's quite cool to be part of it and be able to sort of see how it all works and immerse myself in it all. How's, how's the immersing bit going? Have you been, you've been training a lot? The training's good. The, the team out here is uh, really good. It's a little bit different to sort of what I'm used to. They're quite gi-orientated. They, they all try and bear and bowl me so much. Um, they're all like mini meows. Um, it's uh, Serena and Andrea. Serena is probably the sort of like, it's a, it's a crazy thing to roll with because she's so small, but then she just like, I feel like I know what I'm doing and then she barambolas me and she's on my back trying to choke the heck out of me. So it's quite cool. Um, there's not as much nogi as I'd like, but it's still really good training and the guys there are so, so, so welcoming and sort of welcoming me with open arms and made me feel part of the team already. You, you haven't started setting up a no-gi class already? Um, in prep for ADCC, I was sort of, the guys were quite cool that they would, like a few of the sort of higher grades would bring no-gi kit and the spar and we would spar no-gi, so I would try and get that as much as I could, but I haven't, I haven't managed to set up a, a leg lock class out here yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome though, mate, isn't it? I think that's that's really cool. And it, like, it kind of, that's the thing with jiu-jitsu uh, academies is that, that, that the people in them are generally cool and it's nice, you know, you're, you're X amount of miles away from home, but they're, they're prepared to sort of go out of their way to help you prepare for, a, for, a, for an upcoming tournament. Yeah, they've been super welcoming and anything I've needed, they've sort of helped me out with. I had an ear infection a couple of weeks back and Andrea was the coach who said, like, I know a couple of doctors, here's a number, give them a call, they'll sort you out, they'll hook you up with something. So they've been, they've been sort of like a, a, a sort of family out here. They've taken care of me like so much. And uh, yeah, that's the sort of the beauty of jiu-jitsu is that no matter where you are, you'll sort of always have friends. Yeah. Definitely, and and also like it's cool because you're like, if you're traveling, if you're traveling with your with your masters, like you, it's like a home away from home, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's like one of the first things I did when I came out here. The sort of university said, you, "We don't want to see you for the first week. Go and explore Rome." So I just went straight away to the jiu-jitsu gym and sort of dove right in. That's good. And standards good? Yeah, really good, really good. Like Serena's. Um, I think she won worlds at brown belt. She's taken silver at black belt. Um, I'm not sure if she's won the Euros at black belt. Andrea's medaled at male black belt. Um, and they're both sort of fantastic athletes and coaches. And then the sort of the team that they have are really, really good. They have a lot of affiliates around Italy. And so you've always got guys coming in and dropping in. And Rome's one of those places as well where you have a lot of people visiting from around the world. So even in the month that I've been out here, there's been, I think, like 
three or four brown belts from America over. The other day, there was a black belt from Brazil who just jumped into the competition class. So it sounds good. So I'm getting good training in whilst I'm out here. Awesome. What's the what's the time scale? What what's the how long are you planning on being in Rome? So I'm here till the middle of December. Okay. Yeah. So the plan is just to get everything, the data collected for my masters, and get that written up, and then I submit that in January. And then also with this club out here being uh, gear orientated, um, I'll probably try and focus on my gear a bit and maybe jump into the Euros then in January. So you'll be back in the UK in January and look to submit your your data that you've got from this study and that's part of your master's or? That'll be yeah. the sort of final final hurdle of the master's. So I'll submit that. That'll get graded. Um, I'll probably have to do a sort of informal defense of my thesis where I'll just sit down with a couple of assessors and talk things through and then I should graduate with an MSc in sport and exercise science slash biomechanics uh, come the summer. Amazing, mate. And have you got a plan? I know it's a long way away, but have you got a plan from then or, or just wait and wait? It's a long way away. Just concentrate on today. Yes, I haven't really got too much lined up. There's always talks. People are like, are you going to go down and go and do a PhD or anything? So I haven't, not so much, I've put a bit of thought to it, but um, it's sort of not my main focus. I'd rather sort of, focus all my attention on what's happening now and then we'll worry about that when that comes how's it working with unorthodox mate are you still managing to continue doing that whilst you're away yeah so if anything, i've taken on a couple more clients since being out here which is is cool. great it means i've sort of been able to do it this sort of the beauty of the i guess you could say sort of digital nomad lifestyle where you can sort of as long as i have an internet connection i can still do it um, it just means I have to be a bit more switched on. There's like an hour time difference. So when clients message me at night, I have to tell them, okay, I'm not going to respond until the morning. It's like gone 11 o'clock at night out here. Um, but yeah, I'm still doing everything, still working with clients and sort of seeing progress with the guys. I've got a good sort of group of clients now that have sort of been with me for a while and are consistent. So it's nice to see them progress and still work with them. So we touched on it briefly, like the, um, the ADCC, how was that? You um training in for that and then that was this weekend just gone? Yeah, just gone. So that was a crazy experience. First time competing in ADCC rule set for the most prestigious competition probably in the world. It's like the equivalent of the Jiu Jitsu Olympics. It's mad how disorganized something can be. <laughs> um it was a crazy day. I'd cut a load of weight from it and you get there in the morning and they say, Okay, you can jump on the test scales between this time and everyone's there frantically trying to track, check their weight and then they only had one scale for test weight and official weight and when, as soon as the sort of official weighing came there was no sort of organization of okay this weight class was first or here's a line you need to cue this way it was just like a massive crowd you shove your weight to the front you jump on the scale you've made weight and then the competition itself was awesome there was such high talent out there like Ross qualified, Ross was on fire, so it was great to watch that. Um, Competing-wise, I was annoyed, obviously, that I didn't, I didn't manage to qualify. I fought um, a French black belt um, in my first match. I had a bye first round, and then second round fought a French black belt. And I thought I had him a heel hook. I thought I was going to tap him. I sort of got a bit excited and thought I had it, but he he did well. He managed. He had those like meow legs where. 
no, no matter which way you crank on them, they just don't wanna they don't wanna snap and they don't wanna tap. So, but it was a it was a fantastic experience, and I'm definitely going to try and push for that more. That's definitely a big goal is to try and qualify for ADCC. Amazing, mate. That's mixing it up at the top level, isn't it? That's um... yeah, it's a massive confidence boost as well because I sort of had put it on such a pedestal and thought, okay, like. Uh, there's these guys that there's going to be guys in this that have probably been black belts nearly as long as I've been training. Um, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sort of handle this. And then you go there and I, I fought and I was like, okay, I, I definitely, it's not too far out of reach. I can do this. So it's, it's quite motivating to get to that level. And it's made me want to come back and push uh, harder and harder to actually try and qualify. That's cool. Where's, how much weight did you have to drop for that? So I fought in the 66 kilo class. I actually weighed in quite a bit under, but um, that was just through the travel scales that I borrowed um, were a bit heavy. But I started to diet at around 71, 72, and I ended up weighing in about 64. So I did that over the summer. That wasn't like as if I'd sat in a sauna for ages. Um, I managed to drink some water the morning off and wasn't depleted or anything. So... I did it over a long period of time over the summer. It sort of, I knew I was going to do it. So maybe about 12 to 14 weeks of dieting. And uh, yeah, I managed to get it down. So it wasn't too hard. It's not too hard, mate. But like, if you consider the last four weeks, you've been in a new country where you don't know where to eat, what to eat. Yeah, I think that was just more the head game like coming over here. I think knowing like, uh, being in a different country, like eating a sort of whole foods diet, you can walk into a shop and see fruits and vegetables yep. and sort of find a protein source. Uh, it wasn't too bad, but it was more the head game with having a little pizzeria right around the corner from my flat that sort of cooks up and you can just smell the pizza. Um, and then also in, in the, the office that I work in, the guys there are so nice, but they were sort of testing my patients a bit. Um, in the build up to ADCC where they would come in and they'd have pastries and pizza and they'd be like, Ben, would you like some? And I'm just there like sort of <laughs> gritting my teeth and uh, bearing down not to lose it a bit there. But yeah, no, it was, it was okay. It's not too bad. It's more the psychological thing. Um, but I tell you, it's weird when you diet for so long, the sort of relationship you build up with food, constantly just like on Instagram, looking at pictures of, sort of all this naughty junk food and constantly sending my girlfriend screenshots of food that I want to eat. But yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was just more, I think, just like that mental test. So yeah. on, the, on, the, on a food note in Italy, how's, how is, uh, how's the plant-based diet? I, I, in my head, I'm imagining Rome is like possibly one of the hardest places to, um, to follow that diet. Is it, are they, do they know what vegans are in Rome? Yeah, you'd actually be surprised if veganism out in Italy is actually quite quite a sort of big thing. Um, there's a small sort of supermarket around the corner from where I'm staying. Uh, there's bigger supermarkets then as well that have a bigger selection. But every shop I've been into has a sort of a small vegan section. They actually stock seitan on the shelves. You could buy seitan, which uh, I don't think I've seen in many places in the UK. Um, so supermarket-wise, it's quite easy. Um, Eating out then is like, it's sort of, you have your simple Italian things like uh, pasta pompadour and then like a pizza marinara and things like that. So it's sort of, 
it's quite easily done. You just have to know what yeah. you want. But yeah, the temptations then. Yeah, and sort of learning the phrases a bit and just double checking that there's no like Parmesan on it. And if you do order pasta in a restaurant, just make sure you ask that you don't want cheese on it. So it's not too bad. I think it, it was something I was stressing about before I came here, but it was it was easier than I thought. No, that's cool. I mean, yeah, like classically, like um, again, not very very stereotypical. But I did spend a little, a little time working in a in a in a very nice Italian restaurant, and and Parmesan went on everything, regardless of what it was before it went yeah. out. There was beautiful Parmesan shaved on it. So it's kind of just. Um, but it's amazing that there is uh, that there is the the supermarkets and the 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 like you said sections in supermarkets and aisles and things dedicated to it. That's a really that's really cool to hear. Yeah, and I think as well that the sort of the Italian culture where they push fresh uh, produce. So the the fruit and veg out here is is sort of so much better than you get in the UK. You'd really struggle to find sort of fresh watermelon that tastes good. Um, as it does out here when you're sort of back in the UK. Now you're saying that actually, me think like thinking about it, I'm thinking actually, yeah, because yeah, all of their produce, like tomatoes, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, it's probably easier <laughs> there than it is here in some ways. One thing that I sort of I found the hardest is sort of two of my favourite foods. Um, I didn't have too much of them whilst dieting, but two of my favourite foods are, are peanut butter and dates. And uh, they're probably two of the most expensive things out here just because Italians don't eat them. So the price to buy them is super expensive. So that's quite oh, annoying. But peanut butter yeah, and everything else is like fruit, dates. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. So let's um, talk about um, sort of getting back into um, unorthodox performance um, and just kind of like just be good to get a little insight into kind of like training for jiu-jitsu. Um, in terms of uh, making progress, like sort of, is there anything you're working on at the moment with clients or, or sort of things you've got in the pipeline? Yes, yeah, so it's something I myself am sort of focused on now and I have a couple of clients that I'm sort of pushing this with as well is actually the, the benefit of a sort of an off season. So this isn't, for me, I'm still going to compete, but the competitions I'm going to do aren't, uh, they're not the, the biggest of focus. I still want to do well, but they're not sort of something that I'm going to push for. Um, and it's just more like for me, I dieted for so long. Now it's time to sort of fix some metabolism and actually make some strength gains. I've definitely lost some muscle tissue. Um, and then with my clients, there's, I have one client um, doing his nutrition and his training. And he sort of, he's one of these guys where you he started off getting into the gym and everything and then he sort of was a little bit overweight and he just wanted to lose weight and he's putting himself in a, a deficit and then he came to me and I was like right okay we're in a deficit and then we start training and then he's not making progress so we're actually going into an off season now where the actual goal is to gain weight build strength and then we can look to long term drop back down again so I think it's something that a lot of people especially in jiu-jitsu they don't do is actually devoting time to an off season if you're competing regularly, you're you're. It's very difficult to get the momentum in, in any in any form of sort of strength training because you're going to need a, a block where you you're deloading before a competition. Yeah, yes, like as like the strength wise, like definitely you need you need time to be able to build sort of these uh, these things up and target specific things and um, sort of get that baseline strength or sort of a 
maybe a, a sort of aerobic system, you need to build at that aerobic pace. It's going to take a while. Um, you look at MMA fighters, most of those guys, they'll go through a sort of fight camp and it, there's a big emphasis on conditioning. But in an eight-week fight camp, how much are you going to really improve your VO2? How much strength are you going to put on when you then sort of go, here's a strength block, now we go into like a speed block and now we're going to drop your calories and the whole emphasis is on cutting weight. And I think a lot of jiu-jitsu people as well, they'll sort of, they'll, they, they don't plan out their year, especially sort of the high-level guys. They'll just be like, oh, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. And high level, I mean sort of like maybe purple and brown belts within the UK who sort of um, just sort of compete as and when they can, funds depending. They'll sort of, oh, I'll do this competition at this weight. I'm sitting at this, oh, I can lose a couple of kilos. And then after the competition, they go and binge and then it's like back down and they get back into training and they sort of, they don't build up the consistency. So the, I think the off season is sort of like building up those consistent habits and taking time to build up things because if, if you can um, build up like a baseline of strength and maintain that strength and then you can slowly diet down into your actual weight class and you can still maintain that strength you're going to be so much better competing just because you can you're sort of stronger for your weight I think if you sort of are yo-yo dieting and are inconsistent with sort of your training then you're gonna you're gonna sort of actually sort of be your your worst enemy and sort of shoot yourself in the foot a bit. Do you think there's a bit of fear in that though, where you kind of, it's, you're coming out of comp and therefore that kind of wants to just start plowing, or not want to plow weight back on, but if, you, if the programming involves you needing to gain weight again to get yourself back up to essentially a starting point, do you think there's a lot of fear in that in terms of putting on a lot of weight without having the view that this is just phase one, phase two will be then stripping you back and then phase three obviously, like, you know, actually physically ready for the comp. Do you think people get scared off by that first yeah. phase? Phase? Phase. Yeah, definitely. I think it's more not so much to do with the performance because if they know they're not going to compete for a while, they're not worried about being the strongest in their weight class or being the fastest. I think it's more that if they diet down to a weight class, they start to look a little bit better. Their abs are good. They're chucking up sort of pictures of their abs, bursting out their gi. And then after a competition, that thought of actually like losing that condition and maybe looking a little bit softer is probably what actually scares them the most rather than actually being like, no, if I chuck in like a load of calories and absolutely crush it in the gym, I'm going to feel like a monster. And when I'm rolling, my pressure is going to feel unreal. They sort of don't think of that and they just think, oh, but I'm not going to look that good. And when I post that picture of me in training on Instagram, people aren't going to see that I've got like six bulging abs like busting out my gi and I think it's that's more the the fear side of things rather than the actual thing of putting on weight yeah so it's yeah, it, it, ego is ruling the uh ego is ruling the head right yeah yeah and I think a lot of people as well they misunderstand they they read such like all this crap on the internet that oh yeah you can actually like drop weight and gain strength and it's like maybe if you've never lifted weights before but if you've got sort of a moderate training age then actually the most efficient way to gain strength is to actually gain weight be in a calorie surplus and this doesn't mean go typical bro dirty bulk like plow tubs of ben and jerry's like you can have a, a calorie surplus of maybe 150 to 300 calories on top of what you need and then 
you're still going to make sort of gains in the gym because you're applying a progressive overload. You're applying sort of just simple principles and sort of not too worried about the sort of short-term um, results and you're focusing more long-term. Yeah, I think it's it, it's something I've heard a lot of before, but you don't see many, or you certainly don't hear about many sort of PTs actually applying it. No, I think PTs are... And I can understand why, especially um, if you're working with sort of maybe hobbyist jiu-jitsu people and who sort of go to the gym because they want to look good. They train a little bit because they enjoy it. They sort of, they want that results. They want, it's, it's, it's how they make money. If they can post up to their client, they've got 20 clients and they're all absolutely shredded and they can stay lean year round, then it's going to look good for them from a business standpoint. But also, you've got to think about sort of their long-term well-being. Is like if you're forcing someone to diet year-round, and then they're going to build this unhealthy relationship with food, then it's not going to sort of be beneficial long-term for that person's one psychological health, two physical health, and three performance. That's the one thing I was thinking when you when you started talking was it just that sounds like a lot more um, of a of a healthy lifestyle long-term. Like it just seems like that. Just definitely seems like a, a partly injury prevention partly just general health and like you say relationships around food it just seems like a much more sort of sustainable way of, of doing things uh, and I imagine injury prevention is going to be a, is going to be a huge that's going to have a huge impact on injury prevention because you'll do your training well you're not trying to compete because the the danger is you're lifting weights and then you go training at a high level preparing for a competition that's when you're going to tweak something or or vice versa, after a tough training session, you go to the gym. Yeah, like n number one thing for any strength coach should be to not have their sort of clients injured. You want to keep them on that as long as possible because sort of them gaining strength is going to be pointless and how much they're lifting in the gym is going to be pointless if they're not on the mats at sort of performing their sport. So it sounds like the answer is just planning your your competition year out better, right? So rather than just kind of looking and do the occasional comp on an ad hoc basis, but literally structuring your year in a far better manner. Yeah, it's like if you look at the sort of we'll go like sort of the more higher end competitions, sort of the IBGF competitions that people will target. You know that the Euros are going to be in January. You know that's coming up. You know the world is going to be. In the summer, you know, Euro Nogi is going to be around Easter time. So it's like you can plan out, okay, maybe I'm from January through to the summer. That's going to be my season. And then over the, over the like sort of, sort of July, August, September, October, like maybe November, we start to have like an, an off season where we're not going to worry too much about how much we weigh. We're going to keep it within sort of realms, maybe within percentages of your weight class. But we still want to be able to work on other things like gaining strength, maybe work on sort of building up um, calories through like a reverse diet potentially. So little things like that. And I think it doesn't mean, okay, between January and the worlds, I'm, I'm going to compete like mad and get as many competition as I can. And it also doesn't mean that in that off season, you're just, you're just in the gym, lifting weights, training a little bit of jiu-jitsu, doing a bit of drills. You can still compete, but you just realize that you're maybe not going to be at your peak in those competitions. And uh, you see it through like other sporting frameworks. If you look at maybe like a 
like a cricket season or like a, a football season, teams will look to early on in the season. They know that they're not going to perform well. They're going to try things out. And the whole thing is to like peak towards that one end goal. So it's just like a sort of the, the uh, standard like linear periodization sort of model you'll see within strength conditioning is to sort of work towards and peak for that competition. Olympians, they go through it in like a, a four year cycle where years one and two is just building up things. Year three, we're going to start to try and peak a bit more. And then year four is to try and peak and be the, the best there is in, in the world at their respective sports. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to do it in that fashion that you're only trying to peak for the worlds, but you could sort of have that where you're going to have a peak for the Euros, taper off slightly, peak again for the worlds, an off season, build it up and peak for the Euros again. So you, you know when they're coming, so you can, you can plan things out a bit better and just accepting that maybe some competitions, you're not going to feel as fresh as you could. Um, you can always refine technique, but the sort of physical competencies you can sort of work on um, at different points within the year. That's cool. And is that something that you that people can do like through you? Is that part of um, looking to be part of unorthodox performance? Is that something you can work with <coughs> athletes that are looking to do that? Yeah. So like, if, if someone come, like it's it's hard when someone comes and they buy like a, a twelve week um, transition plan because they're usually thinking within the next three months. So I'll always try and sort of entice out of them like what their goal is and where they want to go afterwards. But um, I'll use an example. I have one client. She wants to do, she was going to do Nogi Worlds in December. She didn't do that. And then there was a competition. I think she's going to do London next weekend. And she sort of realized that she didn't want to do that. And I was like, okay, do we need to compete or can we look to peak towards uh, Nogi world. So we sort of like, we realized that we didn't have to compete or we could enter certain competitions at a weight class slightly higher. Now things aren't planned out as sort of how we thought of doing Nogi worlds. She, she works as a, a doctor, so she's not going to be able to get the time off to go and compete. But um, when we sort of initially set out, we said that in sort of like September, October, we'll complete this weight class and then we'll diet over November and taper down and we'll actually enter at a lower weight class for Nogi Worlds. So it's something I'll always try and do with clients is maybe look at things like that. And then the longer term clients that I have, um, like I said earlier, the one, the one guy where we're actually entering like an off season phase and it's more just for him to be able to, uh, he's a bit more of a sort of like, general population guy he works nine to five trains jiu-jitsu as a hobby so for him it's more okay can we get you stronger can we build some tissue like you might look a little bit softer but come the new year we can start to look to diet and get your sort of body fat down a bit but we can sort of train with higher loads so i think that's one thing people neglect especially if they're looking okay like i need to train in the gym but i i want to look good um what's the point in doing this strength work um, is if you can build up your baseline strength and when you actually come comes around to do this sort of the volume work, you can do it at the higher loads. That makes sense. So instead of if you're doing bench press at 60% of your one rep max, if you take your one rep max higher, that 60% is then higher. So you're sort of going to be able to um, put a bit more tension on your muscles then and with extra load and to sort of, gain size when you come around to a hypertrophy stage. So yeah, something that I'm trying to push a bit more with my clients is 
that they don't have to be dieting all the time and that there's times where they can actually have a diet break and incorporate sort of um, a calorie surplus is going to be so beneficial to them. Yeah, I think we... Do you think there's a benefit with jiu-jitsu that the weight classes are a little bit closer together over, over say, like MMA? Yeah, so that's something I noticed. I think that Jeff weight classes aren't too bad. Um, they're not massively apart. There's something I noticed for ADCC for myself was I was sitting around before I started to diet and I was pretty much slap bang in the middle of 66 and 77. And I had to think to myself, okay, this is a massive jump. Like the ADCC weight classes are 66, 77, 88, 99, 99 plus. So they're sort of massive jumps. So that was a, a big decision for me was like taking that time to diet down and plan out that I actually had to diet over the summer. I didn't compete too much because I knew I would be dieting. And now my off season is going to be building up the metabolism again and taking the time to sort of build up a bit bit more of a healthier relationship with food so I'm not too concerned now about having to sort of count my calories but still want to keep things in check um, and then also build strength uh, I feel like I definitely lost strength it's going to happen if you diet for a while is you are going to lose strength um, but for the weight classes I think IBGF weight classes they're, they're not too bad um, I just think people always want to try and squeeze down into that next weight class and they're like oh I'm only like four kilos over I could definitely diet down and it's like well actually rather than dieting if you spent the time to actually build up your strength and filled out into the top of your weight class then maybe you'd actually perform better because you can eat the morning of you can fight so I think it depends on the competition as well because with regard to weight class I Jeff you step on the scale you fight immediately after there's pointless cut and weight for that because unless it's like a kilo or two because you sort of you're gonna put yourself in a depleted state, which isn't gonna be optimal for performance. Um, but things where you weigh in, like ADCC, I weighed in at 9 a.m. and didn't fight until 4 p.m. So I had time to refuel, hydrate. Um, did you know that? Yeah. Before, did you know that before you weighed in, or is that just Wait. through the unorganized for, through the unorganized chaos with the ADCC? Um, I knew. I knew I would have at least two hours because they said beforehand you weigh in at 9am. So I was like, if I can get straight away onto the scales first thing, then I can weigh in at 9am and fights didn't start until 11. Um, okay. I knew then a couple of days beforehand that I would be later on because they released the schedule and I saw that I was later on. They didn't have too much of a time frame. Um, I didn't know I was going to be on at 4pm. Um, my division started at like 2 p.m. So it sort of was a big division and I just had to sit around and wait for my turn to come. At least you got that, the weight out of the way. It's not like you were waiting around all day to weigh in. So at least, at least you, in a positive way, you weigh in in the morning and although you're waiting around, you're not worrying about your weight. You know, you, you know you're um, one less thing to worry about. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely like a, a massive relief and it just meant I could just chill out and nap throughout the day and just slowly just sort of fuel back up and hydrate and get myself ready to compete. Do you ever think about going up a weight class, like with the ADC heading up to 77 and what that would involve? Um, for me, I've definitely so thought I've about it because um, when I... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've had a joke with a couple of guys, they sort of... They say to me, they're like, when I've been dieting, they're like, we missed Thick Ben. 
Um, when I first started university, I was 68 kilos and I started to Olympic lift and got into my strength training. I was eating anything and everything. And I got up to like a 75 kilos and I would cut weight and fight at lightweight in jiu-jitsu. And I, I was quite thick then and then slowly started to diet back down. I was like, okay, I'm a bit softer. So I've, I've thought about it. I think 66 is a good weight class for me, but I definitely think I could be a bigger 66. Um, I didn't feel like I was out strength or anything, but I just think for myself, I could have maybe approached the cut a little bit smarter. Um, but I have thought about maybe just absolutely juicing up and going full sort of Pablo Popovich or Paul Harris and just being sort of as thick as I am wide. But I don't know, watching the 77s, they look big. Well, they're I don't know whether it's just me feeling like I was small, but they look big. Presumably some of them are cutting down considerably. So, like, if you're going to go up, you need to, you need, you'd need to still yeah, cut the 77, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah. Like, I looked at, um, like, Ross was in there, and he, he didn't look like a small 77. He looked maybe sort of like an average size 77. Dara was in there. He, he looked quite big, but there was even guys in there that I looked and I sort of looked at them and I was like, they were stood next to Dara and I was like, they can't be the same weight class. This, this guy like can't, can't be. But, um, yeah. So if everyone, everyone tries to cut down for ADCC, there's a lot of Eastern Europeans in sweatsuits running around. Shit. Yeah. As always. Yeah. As always. <laughs> there was one guy actually, he, he checked his weight. And then he was probably running sprints for about an hour and a half in a sweatsuit. Kept checking his weight. They like ADCC. You can you can sort of have a towel and you can weigh in butt naked. And he kept checking his weight. Kept checking his weight. And they were like, oh, "Okay, you can you can keep trying." And he's running around, running around. And eventually, like they were doing the rules meeting, and then he jumps on the scales. Whatever else is in the rules meeting, and you just hear like a a big woo. And he's screaming because he's finally like just weight. Like he's like butt naked, really sweaty, looking super depleted, and he's celebrating that he's made weight. I have no idea how he did, like yeah. how he performed, but I don't think he did well. Like sprints for ninety minutes and then twenty minutes to recover before you have to fight. Like it's stupid. Well, that's the that's the man's way to do it. Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's none of this sort of planned out dieting and sort of that's what's good with the uh like the grand slam and things like that they're doing they're doing day before weigh-ins optional aren't they which is quite a good if people are going to cut for jiu-jitsu that like that's that's makes more sense doesn't it than trying to trying to deplete yourself down to nothing unless you're going to do a sensible tailored diet plan like you've been talking about if you are going to cut in an old school way it needs to be a day before weigh-in doesn't it yeah like, like the IGF is good because they sort of limit is limits how much you can cut weight without it affecting your performance by stepping on the scales and immediately fighting. But I think it doesn't matter how you put it with what rule sets day before weighing, right before, two hours before. People are always going to cut weight, and even with the day before weigh-ins, you're going to have people who don't want to invest in sort of a nutritionist or a, or a coach to help them with it, and they'll try and do it themselves, and they'll be sort of whispers around the gym of oh, if you do this if you drop salt if you don't eat this food if you only eat this like uh, my friend's cousin did this and he managed to drop 10 kilos in 27 minutes like there's always going to be people doing stupid things to make weight 
And we were talking with um, someone a little while back and just saying that there's so many different factors. Like everybody, everybody will sauna, everybody will water load, everybody will, there's like 10 different things that everyone's doing and nobody actually knows which one it is that's working. So it's almost like you just need to be, you need to, you need to go to someone that knows what they're doing or spend time yourself to work it out because otherwise you're, you're pretty much just completely depleting yourself of everything yeah. when, when 50% of it's probably not doing anything. Yeah, and uh, I think um, Lockhart was on um, Joe Rogan with John Kavanagh this week, and he's like the the weight cut expert. He's the god of weight cuts, and like he said, like it's taken him years to understand sort of the the ins and outs of it. There's no degree in cutting weight, so if it's taken him so long and he helps the best in the world make weight, I I don't think Dave from down the gym can help you to do it like healthily so i think definitely invest in help of someone if you are going to do it or spending the time to learn to do it is something that's a big factor and there's yeah like you said there's so many factors to it and there's so many sort of things you have to worry about and things you have to try and calculate and uh george lockup bangs on about it is it's not just the weight cut once you make weight that's that's great but it's afterwards so he uses the fighters is if they um, if they miss weight they lose 20% of their purse so like UFC fighters they miss weight they lose 20% of their purse if they if they make weight but they don't refuel properly and they lose they lose 50% of their purse they get 16,000 fights 16,000 wins Sorry, just one second, because we lost that went a bit... Went a bit skypey. Went a bit skypey. Sorry, say that again. So, in terms of if the UFC fighters are missing weight, they're, they're losing 20% of their purse? Yeah, so I'm saying that, like, the weight cut itself is important. You have to make weight, but um, it's the refueling afterwards. So, like I said, with MMA fighters, if they miss weight, it's like 20% of their purse they lose. But if they make weight... And they lose the fight because they haven't refueled properly, then they're going to sort of cut what they could have earned in half. Yeah. So I think that's a, another thing people neglect is they'll, yeah. they'll make weight and they'll sauna and they're like, oh yeah, I can definitely do this. I can run in a sweatsuit for hours. I'll, I'll make the weight class. And as soon as they finish, they're glugging water and causing themselves like digestive stress and not thinking about sort of electrolytes and how much actual glycogen they've taken out of their muscles, how much needs to be put back in. And then they're going to go straight down to Nando's, ram themselves full of peri-salted chips and spicy chicken, and then get ready to fight the next day. That was, it was actually a really interesting podcast, that. Yeah. A really good one. It, it's true that, like, uh, yeah, and he, I think what the way he put it is, like, something he probably articulated what I try to tell people all the time better than... Um, sort of I could and it was that there's no sort of there's all these diets that get result and he used like zone as an example um and sort of like you could intermittent fasting it's just like you have to think about time types of food um the hormonal response of food you have to think of all these things so there's no sort of one size fits all and there's a lot of factors that need to be considered and I think it was a it was an interesting podcast and hopefully some people took away some stuff from that and there'll be a better culture of making weight now. 
Yeah, I think it's just culturally everyone just wants a simple, quick win, don't they? What They want the magic pill that, you know, the one thing that just mends everything and gets them the results they want. And unfortunately, it just never works like that, no matter what you do. Yeah, like that's why I think I want to, for me, for my clients, uh, I try and push this, this actually taking the, the long approach, like take the scenic route and have an off-season and not think about the immediate the immediate goal and think long-term. I think it's a big thing, especially like, Use the UK's example, like you see people competing, uh, sort of blue, they're fantastic blue belts, fantastic purple belts, and they're just like, I need to compete all the time, I need to get a sponsorship so I can train full time. And they're sort of, it's actually no, like, yes, you can win the worlds at purple belt, but no one's going to really care about that if you can't do anything at black belt. If, if you're like losing your first fight in every competition at black belt because you're absolutely fried, then what was the point in absolutely killing it as a purple belt? Do you, do you ever have those pretty frank and honest discussions with clients or potential clients? Um, there's like some people that are sort of like give me like a speculative inquiry and they'll sort of ask about a few things. And usually like after a little bit of a conversation, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll get back to you. And they never do. Um, I'm quite fortunate that the clients I've got sort of trust me and they're open to having discussions with me about these things and they sort of, they see the value in it. They can actually understand where I'm coming from and that I actually have their interests at heart more long-term because at the end of the day as well, like a lot of my clients are, at the moment are sort of like a bit more hobbyists, even though they want to compete and win as much as they can. And it's like, they're not going to be an athlete or like sort of quotation marks athlete for forever. They're going to they need to sort of think about their long-term progress and goals and health. Um, so yeah, like, I, I'm quite fortunate with my clients that they they are quite open and happy to have these discussions and a lot of them are quite sort of intrigued by what I'm saying. Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want the guy who's just making the inquiry and then, you know, probably all enthusiastic, but then just, you know, fucking nothing ever comes of it. You don't want that guy anyway. No. Like, I'd, I'd rather have someone who's sort of consistent, making progress, um, I have clients who like are consistent and they'll tell me if they slip up and they're like actually like I went out and had two days of eating absolutely crap like I'm sorry and I'm like don't be sorry for me like was it worth it okay it's happened now let's get back on there I'd rather that than the guy that's like oh yeah I absolutely crushed it in the gym I managed to do this I did your plan and then I went and did like an extra session of cardio and then I did some cleans and all this like no I'd rather have the person that's like consistent open to criticism, open to discussion, and we can progress um, sort of a bit easier with that. No, it's just, I was listening to a podcast the other day, the, the SET podcast, and this guy called Michael Belvin's on there, who's like, a, he's like a strength and conditioning coach. And he was basically saying that with the online inquiries that he gets, he'll kind of get them on board, get them in, sort of sit down with them for an hour, and he said that they'll be super enthusiastic and all over the place. And this is fantastic. And I want to do this, this, and this. And then what he does is that he goes, right, well, your first session will be in two weeks time. And he said in that two weeks, yeah. you, can still, you know, you basically give them because you know that enthusiasm will go. And if they show up in that two weeks time, then you've got them. If they don't, then you don't want them essentially because all the bullshit and bravado straight up front is just kind of lost. You give them the time frame that sinks in if they're still enthusiastic about it then they'll be there. If they're not, then nah, you don't want to deal with them. I get the same with, um, it's more nutrition clients than anything. The sort of strength conditioning clients are pretty good. 
because they've usually got some training experience, so they, they want to go and sort of get sort of gains in the gym and get stronger. But it's more the nutrition people who want sort of that quick fix of their diet. And when I ask them to give me a, a three-day food diary and they immediately send me three days, and I'm like, it's been an hour, three <laughs> days haven't passed. Like, um, so you can usually sort of like sift through people that way. Yeah. And, uh, and also what you've given so, me here is like 400 calories in an entire day and there is no way that's what you're living on. Yeah, they're like, oh, well, I kind of just have a, a bit of cereal for breakfast and then maybe a chicken salad for lunch. And it's like, actually, no, they're having like half a box of Crave. And then at lunch, it's like a Subway salad with like the Subway cookies on the side and stuff like that. So, yeah, you can usually sift through people. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm actually like, I feel like I'm really overweight and I need to lose weight. And I look at their food diary and I'm like, if you were eating this, you'd be absolutely shredded. <laughs> Bullshit detector. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the best way. And I think uh, the more I speak to other online coaches, like everyone has their own little way of sort of filtering it through and through talking to them, like through messaging them. You can usually like sift through who's going to be a, a good, consistent client and who's not and who's going to be good with their weekly check-ins and be honest with their weight. And like I have one client, Brett, he's like, he's fighting soon and he's so meticulous. He'll tell me how many hours he slept, how, many, how much water he's drunk, what his life stress is feeling like at a score of 10. Like I've, I've managed to put together a, an Excel sheet for him. So he just fills that in each day. He sends me his, like his weight goes in each day and how much he slept, how much he's drunk. I know his calories. We know his, how much like stress he's under, how hard his training was on those days. So those are the clients I'd want. Those people that sort of are consistent and their enthusiasm is there throughout. Well, the more transparent you are, the, the more benefits you're going to get, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like for me, I don't want a client that's just going to lie and tell me that they've, they've eaten this much and they've actually followed the plan, but then they've gained weight and sort of I'm there scratching my head thinking, the, the maths here doesn't add up. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's amazing what people think doesn't count as either food or calories, isn't it? It's just like, <laughs> like just in terms of tracking, it's like, oh, yeah. like the, the seven lattes with two sugars, like that, that hasn't gone into it. Or, I mean, that's a, that's a basic example, but even yeah. worse, like, oh, oh, what, the croissant for breakfast I had on the train, that, but that wasn't a meal. That was just, like, I just ate that with my coffee. So does that, does that count? Yeah, well, they, well, they, they like, weigh out the, the amount of mayonnaise they're having with their dinner, and they actually look at the calories of how much, like, condiments they're having, and they're like, oh, my God, throughout the day I'm having, like, 300 calories of just sauce. <laughs> But, but in the flip side of that, it's the same way that if you don't record your run or like bike ride on Strava, essentially it didn't exist. It doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't exist. One thing I'd like to just dip back into, we, we sort of briefly touching about kind of um, just in terms of like gauging um, progress through like the off-season training going through like that, just in terms of like jujitsu and, and gauging, gauging progress through jujitsu as well. Um, because that's one thing that that uh, I've had numerous conversations with people about, just in terms of it, you, you never really—it's hard to track your progress, really. Yeah, so it's it's not so much tracking progress, but um, it's something I, I try and 
get clients to do. I've written a blog on the website about it. And it's more monitoring your load through jiu-jitsu. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite hard to quantify actually what, like how hard you're training. And I think as well, like when you're maybe not so much the off-season, but towards competition, it's, it's quite important. And it's sort of like how hard you are training, how hard these sessions are. So it's something I've sort of modified from like an RPE scale. So in sort of powerlifting and weightlifting, the rate of perceived ex- exertion of how hard something is. So um, to put it in simple terms is basically if you were sparring, if you did six five-minute rounds um, and overall that session, those six rounds were maybe a, a seven out of ten. So you get your how much time you sparred. So six fives is 30 minutes. You times that by seven, you get 210. So that's just an, it's a sort of arbitrary value for that session. Then you do that throughout the week and you find maybe a weekly average or a, a daily average. You monitor that over a few weeks and then you think, oh, I'm absolutely like fried today. Like what, what's going on? I've already trained jujitsu. Like what's happening? You can actually go back then and look at your weekly average and realize that over six weeks, your weekly average is bumped up. Your daily average is bumped up. And also then maybe if you're peaking for a competition, you've got to try and diet and make the weight. So your, your calories are going down, but your volume's going up. And then you realize, oh, okay, this is what's happening. Maybe it's time to back off the training a bit here. Or if you don't have to make weight for competition, it's like maybe we can implement like a, a refeed or a diet break just to put yourself in a calorie surplus and be able to recover from this extra volume. That's, that's yeah. really good. So you're essentially just giving people a metric that they can work from. Yeah, it's, it's not like as if it's super accurate, but... It's, it's a way of being able to sort of have a number to play with and quantify how much actual volume you are doing um, on the mats. Because if, if you look at, there's not many studies into mixed martial arts or jiu-jitsu or grappling arts because it's so hard to quantify. There's, it's going to be really, really hard to quantify it. So having something like this is, it gives you, the, like, and like I said, numbers to play with and be able to actually have a value to put onto things. That's good. And, uh, it's, it's something that um, something that um, uh, Mike Israel is really big on is like volume, and it's he's he comes from like a a powerlifting bodybuilding background, but he talks about um, the minimum effective volume and the maximal recoverable volume. So the minimum volume being sort of the least you can do and still progress throughout so whether that's okay i can spar once a week for three five minute rounds and i know i can stay sharp sparring and then you have maybe the maximum volume which is i can do six six minute rounds like balls to the wall seven days a week and i can handle that on top of my conditioning and everything else and that's that's also then you have to bring into the factors of like sleep for recovery as well if you're getting enough sleep but just training wise if if everything else is going well then um you can recover from that maximum of volume and if you go over that that's when you start to get super sore and you start to feel it run down it's interesting because that's that's when injuries occur that's like and i don't think i i definitely don't monitor like you could do three rounds of sparring or 10 rounds of sparring at the end of the day you've just trained jiu-jitsu you don't think of it like you just think that's just jiu-jitsu you go home and then you get up the next day and do weights rather than actually going, actually, last night I did three times I normally do. Maybe now's not the time to be doing weights. Maybe do some yoga instead. I know it's not that simple, but 
and especially not at a higher level or elite level, but it's it's definitely like a good way of sort of tracking your output. Yeah, and I think um, if you if you put that alongside your volume in the gym of how much sort of volume uh, you're lifting, and then you look at your sort of caloric intake as well, and you have these three markers, and it's like okay, volume in the gym goes up. Volume in training goes up, calories go down. Eventually, it's sort of the like you're going to hit a brick wall and things aren't going to go right. And myself, looking back, this is why I sort of managed to sort of piece this together in my head was that if I look back at um, my own training, is like the times that I've felt run down, usually volume in the gym has gone up, the amount of sparring I'm doing has gone up, and I'm usually dropping my calories. And what usually happens is like jujitsu is like such a a peak like a petri dish of like infectious space like your immune system is probably at its lowest when you're sparring so if you increase volume increase um sparring and decrease calories and then you're in an environment like jiu-jitsu like i i've had staff before and i, I look back and i'm like yeah i felt run down before i had that and i look back again then a little bit further back and i'm like oh yeah my volume is ridiculous at that point no one's invincible like you, you if you take away calories and increase training and like you say especially in, in that environment in jiu-jitsu where where you're literally just pushing yourself beyond beyond limits sometimes as well um that's when yeah that's when things like that you're gonna you're gonna your, your immune system's down you're gonna pick up things like that um and yeah and also like it's just a lot you know, i just find it a lot easier to get injured when you're calorie deficient like you they for me, if I'm leading up to a competition, I want to be I want to be training hard and training hard. I need to be eating and fueling and just literally like I mean we spoke about it before with 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 Mike and yourself. You need to fuel fuel yourself. You need to you need if you want to train hard, you need to obviously there's there's ways of doing it when you're cutting weight, but you can't you can't you need to understand what your what your limits are. Yeah, I think like nutrition wise, like when you are cutting weight, you have to time your sort of your maybe carbohydrate intake around your training window and things like that. There's, there's simple things that are just like thrown about, but they're not reinforced enough. I think, especially within jujitsu, I think everyone just thinks, Oh, I've had some coconut water and acai today. I'm going to be it's all good. It's a superfood. I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> but, um, yeah. As well, like with, with the, the training side of things as well is sleep It's something I'm pushing my clients to, to do is, is track their sleep is, how much time are they actually sleeping and how good is that quality of sleep? You can get sleep trackers now. But, um, I think just a good pen and paper of like, I was in bed at this time, I fell asleep at this time, I woke up at this time, I got out of bed at this time is a good way to, to track it. And um, I think if you're getting less than seven and a half, eight hours and you're training loads and your your volume's going up and your calories are going down and you're sleeping less because you want to get that extra drilling session in the morning, it's only going to just sort of, you're burning the candle at both ends. Have you ever done anything with the um, heart rate variability then? I haven't. It's something I've read into and I probably should invest like, some money in and have a go at it. But it's not something that I have tried. I, I do want to. It's just like sort of putting the money aside and getting a decent heart rate monitor and doing it. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good good marker. But sometimes I I think just listening to your body as well. Yeah. I think a lot of people need to get in tune with it. You can sort of get, you can overanalyze things as well. I think having good metrics to play with is fantastic, but you can still overanalyze things. And I think if you can just go off feeling 
um, as an athlete, which is good. And that's where having a good coach and being like, maybe measuring your heart rate variability and being able to sort of track it and be like, oh, it says this, but I actually feel good. If you speak with a coach and they're like, no, actually, we should take it a bit easier today. We've got this coming up. Um, but no, I'd like to answer it short. I haven't uh, had too much experience with it, but it's something I definitely want to play around with. Yeah, it was just something I was looking into. I picked up a heart rate monitor recently um, for, for another app that I got, and it seems pretty good, and I can do all that stuff. So I was thinking about having a look at it. But like you say, it's kind of like in my, in my nine-to-five job, I do a lot with data and information. And it's like you can have all the data and information in the world, but what are you going to do with it? You know, you, you kind of, yeah. what, what are the questions you want to ask it? What do you actually want to get from it? You know, you can collect all this stuff, but, you know, you're just collecting it. You're not actually doing anything with it. Yeah, and I think as well, like, if um, if you do heart rate variability in the morning and it says, no, you, like, or you're good to go or you shouldn't, you shouldn't train today, but actually throughout the day you have maybe like an easy day, you're just chilling at home, you're quite relaxed, you get some good food in you and it comes around to the evening class and it's like a competition class and you're like, oh, actually, you feel quite good now. If you, but you're like, you stay at home because you're like, oh no, my heart rate variability said I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it depends a lot on other factors as well. So like life stress throughout the day, you could recover quite a lot through, between the morning and the afternoon. I think if you have a busy day ahead and it says don't train, then maybe don't train. But um. Yeah, it's, it's, you can get sort of paralysis by analysis and uh, bog yourself down with the data a bit too much. I've got a fancy watch that tells me how fast I can run a marathon, so I don't need to run one now because it, it's told me how fast, based <laughs> on my heart rate, how fast I can do it. So that's quite 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 useful. <laughs> you should definitely put that in your Instagram bio so you never have to run a marathon. People just think you've, you've done it. <laughs> Weird, ben. It just seems to be saying fuck off. <laughs> I'm trying to find, trying to find, I'm trying to find, uh, trying to find what it, what it is, but whatever it is, it's ridiculous. Um, Three days, <laughs> two hours. Yeah, it's madness. Yeah. So, um, it's just got an infinity symbol. It's got what, sorry? An infinity symbol. It's still going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just perpetual. It will always take. Still going, still going. So we got a good good couple of um, recommendations from you last last time we were talking for books. So I'm just wondering if you've got any um, have you got any are you reading anything at the moment? Anything new to to sort of recommend? Yeah, so there's one I'm reading. It's, it's quite a it's quite a hard read. It's sort of it's not the information is great, but I can't sit and read page to page. Um, so there's principles by Ray Dalio. Um, so it's just basically about like how there's principles to everything in life and it's quite apt to me with the sort of cf24 mantra of having systems for things um and it's just like how anything you do in life has usually got underpinning principles and if you can stay true to your principles and have solid principles in place how you can achieve a bit more that's cool that sounds pretty good yeah you said it's a tough read yeah it's a tough read so uh, it's the only book I've got on the go at the moment because I've found myself having to read so many journal articles for the research stuff out here that I don't actually have like too much of a, a book. Um, I am listening to an audio book as well by Matthew Walker, uh, Why We Sleep. And so that 
I read his uh, his first book, Sleep, and uh, I had to get the second. So, yeah, that's another good one. That's fantastic and made me realise how much uh, I need to be switched on in my sleep. And that's what sort of sparked me to get my, my clients tracking their sleep and um, making sure that end of their sort of recovery is on point. Yeah, I thought about buying that, but with young kids, I realised it was just going to depress me and realised that I probably shaved 30 years off my life having children, so I thought I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah, it was when he was on, um, he was on Joe Rogan, wasn't he? Yeah. Was it Matthew? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Matthew, Joe Rogan, he? When he was on the sort of, um, the description he was given of um, the stereotypical person who like sleeps this much, does this, like a young person who gets up early, does this, trains really hard. And every sort of stereotype he listed, I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to be dead by the time I'm 30. <laughs> yeah, I thought everything I was doing was supposed to be prolonging, but it looks like it's actually counter. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so bad at sleeping. It's probably one of my downfalls. It's like, I don't know why. I, I try all the blue light blocking, no screens, like dim lights, cold showers, everything, but... Uh, it takes me a while to fall asleep, and then no matter what, I'll always wake up early. Sleep is sleep is so, underrated. It's 100% underrated. It's not it's not always easy to get, but um, but yeah, it's, it's 100. And also, I mean, I'm not sure. Again, this might be a little bit of bro science, but <laughs> but someone I remember someone telling me that if you sleep in the afternoon, it increases testosterone production. So like, if you napping is napping is super good for uh, yeah. I, th- I think I might just be to do with like, it could just be like circadian rhythm because then obviously like you have peaks and troughs of testosterone levels and cortisol levels throughout the day. So, but I, I could yeah, definitely see how sort of getting a little bit extra and napping in can help. It's something that Matthew Walker talks about is that actually humans uh, are normally biphasic um, sort of sleepers. And if you look at tribes in Africa who don't have any technology or anything, they they sleep biphasically, so they'll they'll get up, they'll go hunt and gather things, they'll come home, they'll eat, they'll sleep in the afternoon, they'll get up and have food and dance around and everything, and then they'll go to bed again. Yeah. I can definitely see the benefits of napping and give, give them YouTube, mate, and they'll be watching sharks going around on hoovers until three in the morning, like me. <laughs> <laughs> I always hate that when you think, um, oh, I'm not quite tired. I'll, I'll chuck on a bit of YouTube and then before you realize it it's like 3 a.m and you're in this like weird rabbit hole looking at some eddie bravo conspiracy shit all right mate i think that's that's when i know i need to go to bed then yeah that's that's definitely like i think when you start contemplating whether (laughs) why are shoes flat if you (laughs) brilliant I've just found, yeah, my predicted marathon time is three hours, 36 minutes. So I'll take that. I will call bullshit on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we need to test this. <laughs> yeah, fundraiser going. <laughs> oh, I'm willing to put good money on. You don't have a sub four hour in there. <laughs> Says it here. Yeah. Oh, I'll do your training in the nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> cool Ben alright is there anything you want to anything else you want to chat about I'm conscious of time and things but is there anything no I think I think we covered a lot I think the, the last podcast we sort of was a bit more of an introduction to me and I felt like I waffled a bit so it was quite nice to to dive into a few things um, 
that I think are relevant, especially at the moment in time. And um, uh, hopefully people gain value from that. And I'd say if anyone has any questions about anything, um, just shoot me a message and I'm more than happy to chat to people about anything. And um, I'm going to be putting out soon a, I'll probably do it for free, um, just an Excel sheet, which has got like a, a template for, you can log your calories, your sleep, your your training volume, and maybe I'll I'll send you a link to the blog I wrote about the RPE for jiu-jitsu, and if we can attach that maybe to like the show notes or something, yeah. uh, people can go and give that a read. Hundred percent, mate. I think yeah, that's that. Like, there's lots of there's lots of really great stuff on here, um, and uh, and and yeah, the the other the other podcast has been a been a massive hit. Lots of listens like that's definitely that's that's up there. I think that's quite top top listen numero uno um so um not not too much waffling obviously mate it's um it's very well listened to um lots of good content in there but like you say it is good to kind of like hone in on a few things so um and it'd be good to catch up with you again so hopefully um when you're back in the uk um do something face to face again yeah Yeah, definitely i'd love to come back down you have to get those uh waffles veganized and I'll, i'll come down and test them out Yes, mate, 100%. I reckon I could do it. A little bit of baking powder or, or bicarbonate soda and, I'll, and we'll, get, we'll get the rice, take the eggs out and we're there, mate. There's a delicious hazelnut and 72% chocolate sauce as well that goes with them, which is, yeah, yeah. That sounds wonderful. Certified, it's good. <laughs> awesome, Ben. Well, yeah, I look forward to keeping, keeping a track on Instagram. We'll put some links in the bio um, and just remind us uh, and the listeners where, where to find you on Instagram. So uh, it's unorthodox underscore performance on Instagram and then unorthodox performance on Facebook, unorthodoxperformance.co.uk and then my personal Instagram is Benjamin underscore bunny underscore X. Um, contact me on any one of those and I'm more than happy to chat things through if anyone has any questions or has an inquiry about working with myself at an orthodox performance. Awesome. Thank you, Ben.